Hello, folks, and welcome to the Mind Whisperer. It's March 12th, 2020. I'm excited to be relaunching this podcast after a hiatus of a few years. Uh, different format, uh, much higher production value, and uh, overall, um, renewing the whole content and, uh, and brand. So i um, excited to start off with today's show uh, as a invited guest, a friend, colleague, mentor, Professor Dr. Mark Fettis from Simon Fraser University. But before we get into today's uh, content, uh, I just wanted to go through some details about the program, uh, a little bit of bio about myself. Um, so the new host for um, this podcast is now Podbean, and the homepage is themindwhisperer.podbean.com. You can also find us on Facebook, facebook.com, The Mind Whisperer Show. And um, that's about it for now. Please uh, drop by and um, say hello on the Facebook page and um, look at all our previous episodes, which, I said, as I said before, is in a different format, so kind of a different show. I was giving more of a mini lectures, if you will, and monologues on various topics, and there's some interesting and informative material there. But this new format is really more, you know, uh, a podcast kind of chat uh, format. And so uh, for those who don't uh, know me and haven't listened to the previous episodes, um, or those who are listening again, um, my name is Dr. Michael Gordon. I am a psychotherapist and, and author in Vancouver, British Columbia, which is where this podcast is hosted. And uh, I received my doctorate last year from Simon Fraser University in philosophy of education. Um, and so um, my dissertation was actually picked up as a book, and uh, that book is now available from uh, the publisher Palgrave Macmillan. And uh, the book is called Aikido as Transformative and Embodied Pedagogy, Teacher as Healer. So I, being in the Faculty of Education, I took a philosophical look at um, uh, education and the practice of education uh, through the East Asian philosophy lens of the particular practice of Aikido, which you might call a martial art, although I would hesitate to call it a martial art, which means a fighting art. Aikido, for anyone who knows, is a... Uh, a defensive art that is sort of the spiritual practice of learning not to have conflict and to resolve things in a calm and controlled way, which is the formal practice on the mat, if you will, but it's teaching you how to conduct yourself uh, mind and body in a similar way for daily life and not just in terms of uh, you know interactions or potential violence, but uh, in terms of um, your whole bearing to um, uh, existence. And certainly how to handle things in a, in a calmer fashion in, in emergency situations and just move more uh, fluidly. So that's kind of the broad strokes of what the book is about. And I touch on a, that a little bit in our conversation today. But the focus of today's episode is um, to uh, discuss uh, primarily a book that uh, that Dr. Fettis and I were chatting about uh, in our weekly um, meetups here in Vancouver, uh, just a, kind of a social get together and hang out and talk about various uh, ideas that we have and projects that we're working on. I did fail to mention, by the way, that I am an Aikido teacher here and run a uh, an autonomous Aikido organization called Senshin Ki Aikido. So you can look that up as well. Senshin, S E N S H I N Ki K I Aikido A I K I D O dot com. We're also on Facebook. And uh, 
Yes. So Mark and I, I have been getting together weekly and uh, he's actively teaching and working on projects in the community, primarily teaching up at Simon Fraser University in uh, Burnaby, BC. And so I decided to invite him onto the podcast and talk about a book that he had brought up and then I subsequently got called The Gift by author, uh, author Lewis Hyde, who also wrote a subsequent book that's quite popular called um, How Trickster Makes This World. And Lewis Hyde is a poet and scholar and um, is looking at uh, in The Gift, which is subtitled How Creativity Transforms the World, um, Gift Exchange, um, How Gifts uh, Occur, Comparatively, in market economies uh, versus, uh, let's say, um, you know, traditional communities or different cultural settings uh, where the gifts represent more the intercultural and intersocial exchanges and goodwill and um, also how it relates to creativity itself. So Mark can more eloquently kind of get to that in discussing the book. And uh, before we get into the episode, just a quick... uh, bio introduction to Dr. Mark Fettis, um, and then we'll get on with the chat. So um, Dr. Mark Fettis is an associate professor in the Faculty of Education uh, at Simon Fraser University. He's also associate director of Imaginative Education Research Group at SFU, and his bio is, um, in his own words, I was first drawn to education through my work with First Nations organizations around issues of language maintenance and revitalization. This, in turn, is related to my long-term interest in cultural diversity and intercultural communication, and particularly the management of multilingualism in a globalized world. I've been involved with Esperanto for many years and have published numerous articles in and about the language. Currently, I'm participating in a multidisciplinary European project on the linguistic aspects of mobility and inclusion. My interest in Indigenous and intercultural education has also led to a long-term effort to understand the role of imagination in learning, teaching, and schooling. I have worked with teachers at all levels of the formal education system with a focus on helping them find more imaginative and engaging ways of teaching the mainstream curriculum. My most important contributions have been made in the context of community-based research projects focused on school district First Nation partnerships and on ecological schooling. The theoretical side of this work explores the relationships between experience, language, imagination, and community. So with that, we'll get on with uh, the conversation between myself and Dr. Mark Fettis. Um, This podcast um, was recorded uh, aboard my boat. I have a 32-foot Bayliner 3288, which is a wonderful... um, powerboat uh, with twin diesel engines and uh, it's currently harbored here in Vancouver as um, part-time uh, office accommodation. Um, when I'm in Vancouver, I live outside Vancouver in a region called the Sunshine Coast, uh, which is up the mainland um, in a break in the peninsula. Um, and uh, so my private practice is in Vancouver and my teaching activities are there. And um, so I decided what a perfect little setup for a, uh, a podcast studio and a chat. So I'm not going to divulge the name of my boat at this moment because I'm going through a bit of a renaming ceremony, um, rechristening the boat. Um, but nevertheless, here we are, and here's my chat with Dr. Mark Fettis. Mark Fettis, welcome to the Mind Whisperer podcast. Thank you, Michael. Looking forward to it. Yeah, really happy to have you here as my uh, first guest. It's kind of really a relaunch of this uh, show. And uh, so a lot of people are going to be introduced to uh, the program on a new platform. And 
Um, definitely a higher audio quality, production quality. So um, we're going to get straight to it here. And um, I thought we would begin with uh, reading a little piece that would be an intro to the topic today. So um, just for our listeners, um, apart from the intro I gave Mark, um, we've been getting together uh, quite regularly, I would weekly basically, for the past few weeks. Um, and just kind of hanging out and chatting about topics that are of interest to us and sharing a bit about our personal lives and some of our intellectual and creative pursuits. And um, I thought it would be a really great uh, theme to the show um, to pick up on this book that uh, that Mark has been quite passionate about um, and has been uh, kind of regaling me with uh, little bits of insights from in the past few months um, by the author Lewis Hyde. The book is called The Gift. How the Creative Spirit Transforms the World. And um, as I said in the introduction, you know, I did some coursework, um, actually half of my coursework in my doctoral program at Simon Fraser University with Mark um, as my uh, teacher, uh, professor. And um, even back then you were talking about um, how Trickster Makes This World, which is actually the follow-up to The Gift. That's right. Yes. Yeah. So let's, we'll, we'll pick up a bit about that thread and, and how those, the, sort of the sequence and the lineage of the book. One of the things that Mark and I have been doing is, um, Mark was uh, uh, a few months ago, in fact, when he came over and visited me uh, and my partner on on, uh, the Sunshine Coast here, just outside of Vancouver, had a long walk on the beach, and and you were telling me then about your passion for um, Rainier Maria uh, Maria Rilke. Rilke, Rilke, yes, yes. that's right. Yes, I was translating Rilke at the time. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about that project and then how that kind of, we can kind of segue that into our conversation about creativity and poetry. and Yeah, Rilke is one of these figures that kept on cropping up in books I was reading, just fragments here and there, uh, references by Hans-Georg Gadamer, for instance, the, the well-known German philosopher, um, Robert Bly, the American poet and essayist and so on. Um, so I was intrigued that Rilke appeared as a kind of theme or a touchstone for these people, but I'd read little of his poetry. So I started to look it up and realized quite quickly that usually in English, the the English versions were missing the music of the German, uh, because Rilke, generally speaking, writes in uh, in, in rhyming verse. Now just for our listeners, if you can contextualize a little bit about uh, Rilke and his yeah, so period born, of writing. Born eight, uh, 1875, uh, died in 1926. Um, so quite young, in fact, only at the age of 51. Uh, and um, his work, so his, his great works come from the early years of the 20th century, so between about 1902 and 1908. Um, and then there was a long fallow period, and then this extraordinary burst of creativity in, in the 1920s, specifically in 1922, uh, when he finished the Duino Elegies, which he considered his great work, and also wrote the Sonnets to Morpheus, which I have been translating. Rilke is a poet of, of interiority, um, of, of, of being, in a sense. In fact, I read in one of the biographies about him that I consumed last year that Heidegger, the German um, uh, hermeneutic philosopher, commented on Rilke that, that Rilke was doing in poetry what he was trying to do in philosophy. Mm, really? <laughs> yes. Huh. Yeah, and, and there's something to that. 
Um, so Heidegger is trying to understand what being is without falling into unwarranted assumptions about the ontology of human beings. And Rilke does this in poetry, and indeed he does it not only with humans, uh, but he does it with, with things as well. One of his most famous uh, poems is about looking at a, a sculpture, a sculpture in a museum, a sculpture mm-hmm. um, of a headless sculpture of Apollo. And as the 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 author of the poem regards the sculpture, the sculpture, despite the lack of a head, looks back at the viewer. Mm. And in the light of that gaze, that kind of divine shining gaze that comes out of the breast of this this figure this this um this stone carving the the viewer feels himself to be as it were spiritually naked the the famous uh, final words of the uh poem are you must change your life wow meaning that in the under the gaze of the god who sees everything there's no room for for hesitancy or or self-deception or anything you just have to face up to who you really are mm. so he's a intensely interesting poet um that that i think has a lot to say that speaks to where our culture is today and the kinds of issues we're dealing with mm. and just in term temporality in terms of you know his lifetime you know uh, that uh, overlap period of the 19th and 20th century that kind of the precursor to existential thought right you know Yes, you know, with Nietzsche and certainly yes. Heidegger and the precursors well, to what is recognized. Well, Sartre, Sartre yeah. was very influenced by the one novel that uh, Rilke wrote mm. in 1910, um, called the the uh, the Diaries of um, Malta Laurids Brigger, um, and Sartre's own novel written some a couple of decades later, uh, uh, Nausea, or La Nausée. Um, is is inspired by by Rilke's work. Mm. So yes, there's there's threads of connection into both the the hermeneutic, hermeneutic philosophers and and to the existentialists. Mm. In my own work, um, you know, looking at uh, hermeneutic philosophers like uh, pre-existentialists, I guess you would call them, like Heidegger and and then Gadamer, um, it struck me, you know, it, being the focal point of my own. Um, thesis research from my background in Aikido and non-dualistic East Asian philosophy. Um, just that the West, you know, that, that epistemologically the West is, and philosophically was kind of starting point, the furthest point that they could get without sort of, as you're saying, kind of trying to make any broad ontological claims was was the starting point of, of the East Asian philosophy traditions like Buddhism and uh, and and uh, and Shintoism, which is just the nature of being, is yes, yes, and interestingly, of indigenous philosophies of North America yes, as well. Absolutely. So, um, right at the period where you you just uh, mentioned about 1910 and the uh, that work of Rilke, um, we come across a, a very uh, influential work by Federico Garcia Lorca, um, and this goes back to. My introduction to this uh, stream of Lorca's work, apart from his uh, well-known um, plays, um, was the impetus for my master's research, and at which point I didn't really know what I was going to tackle. Um, I was in a program that was looking at different theories of consciousness and relating that to what's called transpersonal psychology, um, 
loosely kind of the area we're talking about existential uh, the questions that go beyond um, looking at um, the smaller view in terms of uh, human psychological um, uh, phenomena and uh, to the transegoic uh, if, if you will spiritual although that's a much reviled term in academics or limited to religious studies anyway um, but I stumbled on a documentary uh, about um, called called Gypsy Caravan, which was about a, a world tour of uh, Roma music. Uh, it was in I think nineteen ninety eight, and in fact Johnny Depp was involved with this. I think that's how it actually ended up becoming a documentary because it had his name attached to it. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, and so in one of the um, participants in this tour, there was actually a mother and daughter, and the mothers, they're very famous, uh, I'm sure she's passed on now if she's not very old, um, her name is Juana, she's from Spain, and she and she's a singer, and a very husky-voiced uh, uh, woman, uh, very passionate, and her son is a dancer, so flamenco-style dancing, and so they're talking about Roma culture, and particularly flamenco, and saying that in the culture of flamenco, when you're watching uh, dance or listening to the you know that that really kind of uh, evocative singing, they use a term called duende, and duende means like the fire, you know. So you, your your dance or your song has a lot of duende. And duende has a dual meaning in Spanish. It it uh, its literal meaning uh, and folklorically is is um, a hobgoblin or a sort of a mischievous house spirit. Uh, might, you might call a poltergeist, mm-hmm. um, but it also means uh, in something that we'll get into, and this is a, a, a Lorca's application of the term. It also means like demon, or uh, another word for that would be muse or spirit. And the idea being that that is your creative, that's your soul, that's your creative spirit. And Lorca wrote about this in contrast to um, romantic or classical. Um, um, aesthetic theory in terms of divinity that a lot of particularly post-Renaissance uh, that the uh, the sense of the divine and the dedication and the source of inspiration um, was the reverence for the divine which is somehow an ascendant mm. you know or, or uh, uh, supernatural force and in a, in a way to bring it back down and invert that model uh, the duende is the force that comes up through you mm. And so it's a force that can tear you apart if you don't heed it. So I'm going to read this piece um, because it was a piece I was going to bring anyway uh, to our conversation. uh, And now here we are on the podcast. And I think this will be a nice segue into talking about Hyde's book. So this is part of uh, Lorca's uh, work around Duende. And it was a very influential lectures uh, that he gave. Everything that has black tones has Duende. And there is no truth greater These black tones are mystery itself, whose roots are held fast in the mulch we all know and ignore. But whence we arrive at all that is substantial in art. Black tones, said the popular man from Spain and the contemporary of Goethe, who defines Duende when speaking of Paganini, are a, quote, mysterious power from which everyone feels, but which no philosopher can explain, unquote. So then, the Duende is a power and not a method, a struggle and not a thought. I have heard an old guitar teacher say that the duende is not in the singer's throat. The duende rises inside from the very soles of one's feet. (laughs) That is to say, it is not a question of ability or aptitude, but a matter of possessing an authentic living style. That is to say, of blood, of culture most ancient, of creation in act. 
This mysterious power which everyone feels and no philosopher can explain is, in short, the spirit of the earth. The true struggle is with the duende. The arrival of the duende always presupposes a radical transformation on every plane. It produces a feeling of totally unedited freshness. It bears the quality of a newly created rose of a miracle that produces an almost religious enthusiasm. All art is capable of duende, but the place that is naturally occurs is in music, dance, or spoken poetry because they require a living body for interpretation and because they're, they are forms that perpetually live and die. Their contours are raised upon an exact presence. Hmm. That's quite a potent... Mm. As you would expect from Lorca. Yes. He, he was not one to waste words. No, he's an intense, <laughs> intense dude, for sure. Um, so there's a lot in there, and I think that that's, like I said, is, a, is uh, might be a good way to turn it over to you to introduce people to um, to Lewis Hyde's work, particularly The Gift. It's a very uh, packed book. So um, being the educator that you are and, and having just uh, taught uh, some of your coursework the, recently uh, with this book, um, I'll leave it to you to kind of try and... Uh, find some kind of uh, starting point that people can get into what this book is about. Yeah, there's so many ways in. Um, Hyde does mention Duende mm -hmm. at, at one point where he's talking about poverty. Um, poverty is one of the themes of the book in a sense because, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> as Margaret Atwood says in her rather wry introduction, you know, what the book is about is is why poets are doomed to be poor. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, Hyde writes about that interestingly in the section where he, he uh, cites Duende. He says um, um, something like, middle class and intellectual people often feel that, that poor people have nonetheless some sort of secret source of vitality. Some there's something that they have access to that that somehow we the the educated upper classes have lost uh, amidst all our possessions and our our mm. sober ways of living um and he mentions duende as one one of these traditions or you know notions that is as in the case of the roma right typically associated with the people who have very little right. in in terms of material possessions and Hyde said, says that, yes, there's something to this, and, and it has to do with, with the nature of the gift. Um, so Duende uh, and these other kind of mysterious sources of creative energy um, that are experienced in all kinds of different ways by people around the world in different contexts and different cultural uh, forms. Um, these come upon us as gifts, that is, they, they are not sought for, or if they are sought for, it's not because we seek them that they come, but they come, as it were, free, uh, as, as something that perhaps that, that individual demon or, you know, guardian angel or whatever might give to us, or from a higher power or another a transcendent realm, however we think about these things. Um, this this life force or creative force, um, so it comes to us as a gift, and then um, we must both be poor spiritually um, in order to receive it. 
That is, the gift won't come to someone who is too concerned with their own, with their own wrapped up, as it were, in their own thoughts. There needs to be a certain openness, right? Um, and and then there needs to be the willingness or uh, the the sense of obligation to pass the gift on. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is the that creative impulse that artists feel that that for their own well-being for their their way of being truly who they are if they have received the gift a gift from who knows where then it's essential the in a sense the purpose of their life one of the central purposes of their life is to then make that gift manifest in 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 what whatever it might be dances or songs or or written works or or um works of art <clears throat> but it needs to be brought into some kind of tangible or or shareable form and then given um so although artists hyde says sometimes because of out of necessity have to take an interest in whether they can actually sell their work and mm-hmm. receive money for it um it's essential that the the sphere in which the creative work takes place is not, as it were, taken over by the commercial um, values that's the of the marketplace. Mm-hmm. And so, working artists very often solve this, for instance, by getting an agent to right. do the selling for them. Right. So they work in their studio. They give their their um, products to their agent, and the agent flogs them and and makes them for the artist what what income they can mm-hmm. other ways are are for artists to find benefactors so the benefactor goes off into the filthy world and makes a pile of money right and then gives it to the artist who uses it to uh pass their own gift on to others so there's various ways in which artists can do it do this but pull off this trick as it were but the the central necessity is that that sphere of creative work not be in response to what the market wants, but in response to what the gift demands. Yeah, and Hyde's very careful to say he is not setting one up to be superior to the other. He's but he's but he is identifying a definite distinction between what he calls uh, the uh, value and worth. Yes, yes. At one point in the book, he talks about how value lends itself more to the commodification of goods and worth is more inherent to the gift itself. Because the, as he says, the gift inflates because, because of the life it takes on in those who receive it and pass it on in turn. Yes, that's one of the really crucial insights of the book that I am still mulling over. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is that, and he, he cites many examples from traditional societies mm-hmm. uh, to show how this works. Um, gifts in a gift economy, um, first of all, require that they be continually passed on in order that they remain lively. Uh, the point of giving a gift in the gift economy is not that the recipient puts it on a shelf and, and right. admires it right. or shows it off to others. Right. The point is that the recipient then gives it on themselves to someone else. Yeah, he actually talks about in the, I think I can't remember if it was specifically a Haida culture, but he's talking about uh, the coastal uh, First Nations and that the value of those who 
give is higher than the value of those who receive, that the value of those who receive is suddenly now flattened because they now have the task of giving it away again. Yes, it's not that it's flattened, but they in, 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 in receiving, they have incurred an obligation themselves, right? right. So now they will not, uh, as, it, as it were, the, them receiving a gift then sets up an, an expectation or a necessity that sometime in the future when they can afford it, they are going to give the gift back more lavishly. Right. Because that's the other piece of the gift economy that Hyde writes about, that as the gift moves, it actually increases. Right. That is, its value increases, but also, interestingly, part of the increase is in the increase of uh, social bonds, social feeling, solidarity. Yes. Uh, inter-clan relationships, inter-family relationships, these kinds of things. And he also speaks about how it's susceptible to deviation again to the the world of industry and economy because then you drift into usury and and the value-driven as, or the value-defined aspect uh, in the market of the gift. Oh, so, he says, so, so he talks about obligation and debt, right? Yes. Yes, he says flat out that if you have a, a culture which functions by means of a gift economy, as the Northwest Coast cultures here mm -hmm. traditionally have. Um, and you uh, commercialize that, so you, you uh, find a way to uh, shift that economy into the market economy, then the culture will fall apart. Fall mm. apart. Mm. Um, it simply can't sustain itself in... in in the in market transactions yeah and he makes a really interesting comment about uh <coughs> drawing from marx and he says actually the first line of, of das kapital that uh marx asks the rhetorical question how do you determine the value of linen mm. the value of linen can't be linen because right. it has to be differentiated yeah so then it's always uh defined by an equal or com comparable commodity in the marketplace yes so so in a sense, the the gift is kind of antithetical to that, or creativity is antithetical to that in, in some sense. Yes, well... Because it can't be contained and, and, in its truest form. Yes, it's also a matter of the relations between the, in that case, the seller and the buyer, right? right? So one of the ideas that Hyde explores is that through a gift economy, you essentially foster brotherhood, for want of a better word. Mm-hmm. So relations within the group that are those of kin, um, where uh, where the market economy appears is at the boundary of the group. That is, when you have to deal with outsiders, right? Um, then that is where you are trading uh, one thing for another right. thing, right? Whether it's for money or whether it's barter. Because it but loses its cultural cases. definition from within that community. That's right. And, yeah. and you don't have that system of reciprocity right. that you do within the community. Right. Uh, there's no sort of set of shared understandings and obligations where you can be sure that that gift that you give is going to eventually return to you. And even if it, it doesn't return quickly or, or even at all in a sense, you know that by the giving of the gift and the that the gift will continue to be given. But you don't know this with a stranger. You give a stranger a gift and they may just put it in their, in their pocket and walk off. Yeah. And indeed Hyde uh, starts the book by 
uh, tracing the origins of that that phrase in English, Indian giver. Right. Right. And he asks you to imagine this pilgrim father, you know, who's arrived in in Massachusetts back in the 17th century, um, and and he goes to visit uh, the local tribe, and and they welcome him, and they make him a present of of one of these traditional gifts, like a pipe. Um, and the the Englishman. Uh, says, oh, thank you very much. Nice pipe. Takes it home, puts it on the mantelpiece, and doesn't go anywhere. Right. And then, and then at some subsequent occasion, uh, his indigenous neighbors turn up for a visit, and they make it clear that they rather expect that pipe to be given back to mm-hmm. them or given on to them. Um, and you can you can see how coming out of the European cultural context, this this makes no sense. They yes. gave me that pipe. It's yes. my pipe now. Yes. But but in the gift economy, things the gifts that you receive are not your gifts. They're 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 you're simply the custodian, as it yes. were. And what's more, your worth or the the gift's value to you is is manifest most of all in the moment when you give it on. So you should actually be looking forward to the moment when you can pass this gift on. Yeah, I mean, this sort of goes off in different directions for Hyde, and it's quite fascinating, and we could pick up any of those threads, and maybe we will. But uh, it makes me immediately think of the chapter where he's talking about usury, and in particular he's talking about the the strand that goes off in, in market economy towards um, <clears throat> obligation and debt. and And so the organization of that for at the state level and then the emergence of the precursors to the anarchists the Anab- anabaptists mm-hmm. and that sense of kind of trying to like literally burning down burning down all the notes and burning the currency and uh kind of again flattening or you know um you start kind of taking down to a to an equal plane um but as i was thinking about that i was i had another thought about um this is all still in the sense of an object, like kind of an, an object sense of what a gift is. Even if we're not talking about it as a transactional thing, there's still a sense of the gift as a as an object, as a noun, right? Sure. And and I, th- it, I think we really want to to do honor to his book and what we're both, I think, a little bit more deeply fascinated by is the the uh, element in terms of the gift of creativity as an artist, and particularly I'm interested in. A, as I said before, it started with this uh, kind of burning question around my master's thesis around Duende, and my interviews were with artists. And my question was, did you know early in your life, as you even as you look back, mm. was this something that was working itself through you as Duende? Did you have a choice in becoming an artist? And was there a struggle? And you and I have talked, uh, I've shared with you, I don't know if you've read uh, subsequently, but um, one of my favorite books by James Hillman called The Soul's Code. James Hillman, the famous uh, now departed um, American Jungian psychologist and philosopher. And The Soul's Code, he's, he picks up this notion of uh, calling and, mm. and the daemon and um, whether you can look at the, sort of the biographical arc of someone's life and take the deterministic view psychologically or psychodevelopmentally like Freud and say, well, they compensated for some kind of insecurity in their childhood and therefore they became famous or heroic. And rather, Hillman asks intriguingly, what if that was that greatness was there from the beginning? And he uses uh, Plato's so-called, uh, Plato's so-called uh, acorn theory, that there's some perhaps deeply or preternatural sense of uh, destiny within us. 
And that shapes us mm. um, towards becoming uh, what the what the acorn holds is eventually being the oak tree. Um, so there's a little uh, section here in, in Hyde's book where he's talking about Flannery or O'Connor and just kind of making this transition from the exchange of gifts and within the community and talking about the 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 flow of the gift of creativity in 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 perhaps even in a disruptive sense uh, or a fluid sense for the artists and O'Connor writes uh, this is Hyde quoting her or sorry quoting Flannery uh, O'Connor the eye sees what it has been given to see by concrete circumstances and the imagination reproduces what by some related gift is it is able to make live. And then Hyde says, when we say that, quote, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, unquote, we're usually speaking of things that, quote, come alive when their elements are integrated into one another. And then later on in the paragraph, um, this I thought was quite uh, um, stark and maybe a good jumping off point. Gifts are the agents of that organic cohesion we perceive as liveliness. Mm. Yeah. So there, it goes back to what we were, what uh, Lorca was saying about duende is is the life force itself. It's the spirit. It's the spirit of the earth. Yes, and and Hyde does. Uh, that's one of the the areas in which I'm most interested in in taking his thinking into the kind of work I'm doing at the moment um, to see uh, the gifts of the earth um, as as implicating us in in this kind of gift economy whether we like it or not right mm -hmm. that that he he gives numerous examples of the way in which um the ceremony of gift giving um as in this is not one of his examples but but here on the west coast it is uh customary in in many indigenous cultures to give gifts to plants when one harvests uh, something from the plant. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, if one is going out and collecting the bark of the western red cedar, which is an important material for weaving um, baskets and hats and things, um, then then it's important to thank the tree, to mm -hmm. express uh, one's gratitude, and often also to to leave something as a as a mark of respect, as a gift back mm -hmm. for the tree's gift. So Hyde, Hyde's general argument in in such matters is that um, the the ceremony of of reciprocity, the reciprocal gift giving involved, um, is a way of making manifest an understanding that the culture and the earth are bound together in an economy of gifts. So, which means that the earth is also our kin in the same way that mm -hmm. the, the people with whom we are involved in cycles of gift giving are also kin. Um, so, so that simple act, which in a Western kind of frame of reference really doesn't make sense because how does the tree know that it's been given anything mm -hmm. in an indigenous frame of reference is absolutely logical. That is, it, it follows from one's understanding of the nature of the relationship. Well, that also speaks to why, um, generally speaking, artists in traditional indigenous cultures have a respected role. Yes. Have a highly respected and valued role. Absolutely. 
it makes but, me yeah but but recall that art as a category is is uh, is itself a western notion yes. right yes yeah <laughs> there was that there's yes. there's a, a a nook artist who was asked to to if uh, somebody offered to uh, put out a, a, a co- coffee table book of her work yes and and in wanted to have a, I guess an essay or something about her artwork and explaining her art and she said well you know in Inuktitut there is no word for art mm. <laughs> and did she not go on I I recall an uh, an Inuk uh, artist and elder who was asked what art was yes. or offered her own definition she said something like and this connects to what you were saying earlier it, art is the way that we make things more real mm-hmm. more real than they were Mm-hmm. When 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 we started, mm-hmm. more real in what sense? Do you think more present? More more lively. More I lively. Think meant. Yeah, in the spirit of what Flannery O'Connor is talking exactly. about, lively and present. Mm. Then then I think about Duende, and I think about again in sort of a psycho spiritual sense of one's path in their living, you know, existence, and how at least in Western culture or industrial capitalist culture. Um, so many artists, uh, famously, um, and and certainly Hillman writes about this. He writes about uh, Judy Garland in a very kind of powerful way. Um, have such a tremendous and, in fact, you know, uh, early uh, um, departure from the earth because they can't cope w- with integrating the that open-ended sort of uh, life vitality that comes through them as an artist through inspiration with the way this the the culture treats. The gift of creativity. Yeah. And they implode. Yeah. You know, so the, the so-called 27 Club, you know, Jazz Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Kurt Cobain, Robert Johnson. There's, you know, it's, it's all 27 years old. And Jim Morrison, the list goes on and on. And there are, of course, many artists from other cultures besides the United States, obviously. Um, but I've always found that really quite intriguing. You know, it's we tend to sort of look at that as being hedonistic and there's a lack of self-control or it's just sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But I think you look at it through this view of, uh, you know, Hyde or Hillman or Lorca and so on and so forth, and it takes on uh, quite a different hue. Yeah. Yeah, there's something very poignant in that, isn't it? Yeah, um, and maybe you could speak a little bit to um, to the, his portrait of... Um, of Walt Whitman, because it speaks a little bit to that as well in terms of, you were speaking earlier off off mic about um, describing Whitman's work as very embodied and and uh, yes. and drawing in that um, artistic uh, um, inspiration. Mm. That, that you were using that word very specifically as Hyde does. For sure. So the the book includes uh, lengthy essays on both Whitman and on Ezra Pound. Mm-hmm. Um, both of them, I think, very insightful mm-hmm. into the lives of these artists and how how thinking about the nature of gifts, the way gifts move, and the way that artists understand gifts to move through them, mm-hmm. um, helps us helps clarify aspects of of each man's choices in their lives mm-hmm. and the things that they struggled with and the things that they succeeded in. Um, for, yes, for Whitman, Whitman, obviously, if you've read any Whitman, he's, he is a very physical poet. He's a very embodied kind of poet. Mm-hmm. Sensual. And, yes. Highly yes, sensual. Very much so. Yeah. Yes. And this was also the way in which he understood 
the nature of the inspiration or the gift that he mm -hmm. was given, which came to him relatively late, I believe in his 20s. Um, uh, up till then, he really hadn't produced anything of note, but then then one day it, it, it arrived, this, this calling. Mm -hmm. He found his calling. Um, and the way that he writes about this in his journals and in and letters and in the poems themselves is very much as of a kind of physical, uh, sensuous kind of uh, touching or taking in of 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 a lover or um, of of a food. Um, so something enters the body and becomes part of the body and in the process uh, as you were saying sort of vitalizes vivifies the body yeah it's uh, like classical uh, Greek term is uh, aesthesis I guess so yes that, that kind That's of right. being yes. being uh, kind of um, overcome with the, the presence of something and yeah that, Hillman writes about this the yeah. aha yes right the aesthesis is the intake of breath <gasps> yes Yes. That kind of should, that <laughs> awe, right? Yes. And, yes. I, and I love this, that there was an educator at uh, some conference, I quoted him in my book, um, and he says, yeah, the opposite of a thesis is anesthesis. Mm. No, <laughs> quite so, yes. And I think mm. we have a quite an anesthetized culture, even yes. though we find, you know, kind of um, entertainment and intrigue and even sometimes inspiration in, in all this, you know, uh, multi-platform you know, platform content that we have and at our fingertips and you know, social media platforms and Netflix. I mean, we have the m more content creation now. It's more become more decentralized and democratized than ever. Creativity is more um, distributed mm. than it's ever been in, 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 at least in terms of modern industrial um, history. But at the same time, I don't know that it carries the same kind of assesis that we're talking about, where, you know, walking in a forest or, you know. Yes, I wonder too. Um, one of the most uh, striking images or ideas for me in the essay on Whitman is um, the image of creative work as a breathing in and out. Yes. Um, we were talking about this earlier. Uh, that is, the, the in-breath is that aesthetic mm -hmm. openness, mm -hmm. uh, sort of breathing in the world, yes. letting the things of the world speak to one in, in all their complexity and fullness and mm -hmm. sort of inexhaustibility. Mm -hmm. And the out-breath is what Whitman refers to as pride, that is a, a sort of sense of the integrity of the artist, mm -hmm. the, the, the creative individual, who who is receiving continually the gifts from the world and then giving them back in the form of artistic work. Yes. Um, and and seen like that, you can understand the urgency that infuses uh, the work of artists, right? I, I referred earlier to the fact that the, the gift only lives if you pass it on. Um, that, that if you have a gift, if you're gifted, and then you do nothing with it. Right. It, it's suffocating. And and we can think of that uh, suffocation in terms of this breathing, right? If you don't breathe out, you can't breathe in again. So uh, the the work of the artist is actually a kind of participation in this this respiration uh, in, a, in, com in commerce with the world. There's a, there's a line in the book, which I'd have to flip through now, and I... Can't quite photo, and I can't remember if it's Hyde or if he's if he's quoting someone else. But it 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 roughly paraphrase, and it just makes me th have this thought that art teaches us how to live. Creativity is te teaching us to how to live. Nature teaches us how to live. You know, so if if art is a representation of 
liveliness or not a representation. It is a manifestation. Yes. Or a or a continuation, mm. an expression of the vitality of life. It's teaching us about breathing in and breathing out. Right. Particularly in our more artificial urban cultures, we're losing that sense of you know what the Japanese uh, call forest bathing. I can't mm. remember the Japanese word for it, but it's becoming very popular now outside of Japan because people are realizing they need to have contact with nature because they're to be reminded we're living beings. Mm. Yes. Yes. I think that that idea of art as um, uh, you were groping for words, right, embodying or representing or doing something mm -hmm. with the liveliness is actually the movement, right? That, yes. So it's the the sharing of art. Yes. The when when we go to an art gallery and we see art on the walls and then it's you know that will come and go and uh, a few months down the road it'll be another set of exhibitions, but. It's the taking in of the art. It's us going to the gallery, letting the art uh, enter us yes. and, and, and shape us and inspire us. We take it in. And then that becomes part of our conversations or the ways in which we look at the world a little differently. Yes. Um, so it's, it's the, the art contributes to, it's part of this, um, what we might call an ecology or what um, Hyde might call an economy. Um, of of the circulation of gifts, which which very much does include the living world, as you were saying. You know, and it might all sound really to people listening like really rudimentary for anybody out there who's particularly these days. You know, a lot of people have gone back to m making. Mm. You know, returning to tactile, you know, um, craft and and uh, artisanry and these kind of things, and so they feel much more kind of uh, reconnected, reacquainted with that you know, respiratory relationship with uh, creativity in life. But for a great number of the people who are kind of toiling away and just surviving day to day and taking and consuming, you know, creativity and culture through uh, content or these kind of things, you know, how many people spend the time actually going to art galleries or even, you know, trying painting or sculpture themselves. So that makes me circle back to something that Hyde talks about, which again, I think is a very interesting notion. And, and Hillman certainly writes about this because it's a, it's, definitely a Jungian if, and then Freudian kind of idea, but this tension between, or contrast, I should say, between uh, the analytical, the cognitive, and the the erotic. So um, in those classical terms, logos and eros. And Hyde writes about that. He talks yes. about the market economy being more indicative of that kind of analytical, rationalized uh, uh, culture, you know, transactional culture, market economy, and then eros, which is this vitality and this liveliness. Mm. So when I think of aesthesis, I think of that aha. I think of us being stopped in our tracks, whether in nature or by a work of art, that we don't even know why it's moving us. Mm -hmm. it, it reminds us we're alive. It does. I tend to think that, in, and I've spoken, um, I th I th we've spoken about this actually in a couple conversations ago, about how people operating in hypnotic trance. Mm-hmm. That we are kind of drifting along in the kind of culture we have, which is very materialist and acquisitive. And so we are kind of moving from the next to the next. And we lose that sense of presence in our own lives of who we are, the continuity of where we've come from. And if we don't have those embedded cultures that um, have rituals and practices that mark the changes in our lives communally, then they just kind of flow behind us in, mm. the, in the wreckage of our lives you know mm -hmm. 
Yeah, Hyde doesn't uh, write too much about this, but there's definitely a sense in which the speed... This was of, a jumping off point, by the, the way. <laughs> we weren't the, supposed to focus exclusively on his book. No, no. Yeah. Uh, but I'm just thinking that this yeah. is something he could have written about. Right. Because others have. Um, that that there's an issue of, of speed or rapidity or, or mm. um, the compression of things here as well. So where the market economy has clearly led us is, as you said, into experiencing life as a sequence of more or less independent or disconnected moments, right? Yes. Or, Units or, of time or... Yeah, segments yeah. Of, of our day Passing or our life or, yeah. or whatever. Yeah. That's right. And, and one of the uh, odd things that seems to have happened uh, is that these segments have become shorter and shorter. So that the the flicking uh, from one to another um, has become faster and faster. So the yes. way that now, you know, where one used to work at a job for some decades, now one maybe works at it for a year or two or maybe a month or two or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, or the way in which, uh, you know, going to the movies used to be a, the, the work of a whole evening and there'd be a uh, an introductory feature and then there'd be the main feature and... Um, and now it's you know twenty minute a twenty minute episode of some show on Netflix. Yes. Or or a, a five minute video on YouTube or or something a few seconds long on TikTok, right? Right. On your um, phone in your palm. Yeah, 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 exactly. So so there's definitely this this trend towards the uh, fragmenting things more and more, and and speeding up the rapidity with which one experiences them and then shifts into something new. Yes. Um, whereas a gift economy, it seems to me, requires a certain slowness to it, right? There's the slowness involved in the in the work of the artist mm -hmm. because it, we all know that, uh, you know, it, it doesn't... It, there are these moments um, when, when things flow and, and you can barely get the words down on paper or the paint on the canvas or whatever yes. uh, quickly enough. But then there's long periods in which it's 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 slow, hard work. It's painstaking, um, and and moments of fallowness where where you need to be doing something else, or you know you simply have to wait for the muse to arrive, or or for circumstances to align, or for the right yes. stimulus to come along. Um, so the rhythms are quite different uh, of the of the commercial world, the the world of the market, and the world of the gift economy. Yeah, and I don't think it moves in a good direction. I mean, it certainly creativity becomes explosive. You know, as I, as we're you know, were saying, or I was saying earlier, that it 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 there's a certain kind of um, explosive or kind of a blossoming effect with the all these you know in, infinite number of channels to put content out there, mm. or people taking back these, you know, kind of classic crafts of painting or making or, you know. But I think psychologically, and you know, certainly there's a lot of good research out there about what it does to our psyche and actually to our cognition and the way we process experience. It's having a really deleterious effect, particularly on younger people, mm. because that sense of reciprocity, interaction, presence, liveliness, risk, you know. Um, ule, which is the the artistic nom de plume or the uh, nom de guerre I guess maybe for him <laughs> of uh, of the uh, long uh, artistic and romantic uh, partner of um, Maria Abramovich he just passed away 
and he was one of those you know really early influential confrontational kind of edge edgy um, performance artists where the art was their bodies mm. you know and there's one particular uh, piece that they did in, in the 70s where they were naked and standing in front of each other I can't remember the, the name of the actual piece you can uh, certainly find it up in his obituary or those who know his work but they were standing about three feet apart and the patrons of the gallery had to come pass between them mm. and their naked bodies mm. and make contact mm. and all the things that that would you know kind of mm. the brushing up and all that kind of stuff so the realness I guess mm. you know, sort of the tactile realness of life and um, yeah there's some interesting work out there and again I can't remember the author I remember listening to a CBC piece by the author of a book who's putting out this idea that we're that this fragmentation of our attention isn't actually attention deficit it's attention surplus he calls it attention surplus disorder hmm. and I thought that kind of very intriguing interesting that we yeah. are that we are too attuned in a certain way but we're not engaged hmm. our attention is caught up in things but we're not actually participating in them right well, because, because who can participate in that rate all the time? It's yeah. exhausting. Yeah. yeah. The fast edits, the, you know, yes. the, yeah. Yeah. Which makes me think of appreciation as well. You know, that's part of the gift, right? You know, when when you receive something, you appreciate the intention, the, the feeling, the thoughtfulness behind the gift. Of course, there's a cliche, right? It's a thought that counts, but it's, it's true. Um, and it makes me think of the lost art of letter writing. Mm. You know, that when you receive a handwritten letter it's a completely different experience and I started to think that it's people who maybe have never received a handwritten letter, <laughs> oh, written yes. letter. undoubtedly yeah. yeah um I had another thought that just escaped my mind about that um anyway um I was going to say I've been reading Richard oh pardon me so it was a thought about Heidegger sorry to interrupt but um there was a really nice little piece he, he writes about in early in the book where he's saying contrary to the reputation of French as being kind of snobbish and exclusionary and 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 uh, private that in the south of France um, Levi Strauss the famous anthropologist uh, wrote about uh, you know kind of a, a more um, uh, earthy kind of uh, low I don't know how to put it but uh, just like in a poorer area, there was like a more of a common kind of restaurant and it was a family dining. And so you'd sit at a table with a bunch of strangers and the practice was you pour wine to the person next to you mm. and then they pour it back. And yes. that was a beautiful example of reciprocity. Yeah. And it, it, like the letter writing, we've lost the appreciation and the cultural uh, practices, at least in the West and mainstream culture of, of those kindnesses, those basic gestures of appreciation. They are a kind of a gift. Mm. You know that I that you bestowed a kindness upon me, and that's that's a that's a privilege and honor to receive the kindness of a stranger. You know, mm. just in passing, just in opening, holding a door open. You know, for sure. I mean, they still exist. Yes. Um, but but one might sense that they're under threat. Yeah, I did interrupt a stream of thought you had there. Well, I was going to say I've been reading Richard Wagami's mm -hmm. uh, Ojibwe writer who uh, who's creative. Uh, work took place largely here in BC mm -hmm. um, and who died recently mm -hmm. um, and one of the last books he he read was uh, he wrote was called Embers it's a s sort of collection of short meditations mm -hmm. um, and in that book the number of meditations he writes about the importance of silence um, he says in fact more or less 
in so many words that I am the silences between my words. Which is also, I think, he... Wagamese had a really deep sense of what it means to receive a gift because he went through tremendous struggles himself, personal mm -hmm. struggles. Mm -hmm. He had a very difficult upbringing. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he struggled with substance abuse for a good part of his life. And it was discovering himself as a writer that, that really changed his life. Was he, was he at least, if not uh, from a generation of residential school survivors, one himself? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, and so often his, his reflections in these meditations have, have to do in part with what one, with the way in which the world offers its to, uh, offers itself to us as mm -hmm. a gift daily, mm -hmm. um, and the spirit in which we are to receive that mm -hmm. and, and how then should we conduct ourselves in full acknowledgement of, mm -hmm. of the gift of each day. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, it's a really profound, I think, way to to approach your life. Yes. Um, to in a sort of constant spirit of gratitude, and there's something in it that also has to do with this 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 dr being drawn towards the quiet, being drawn towards the slow. Um, which I, as I say, I'm still trying to figure out these things, how they relate in, in part to teaching, because as a professor of education, I work a lot with teachers. Um, and it seems to me that there are really helpful ideas or lessons, teachings here uh, for teachers as well in, in how to be in a classroom with children um, in ways that end up being uh, vitalizing, you know, that bring that liveliness that we were talking about into the center of classroom life. You know, I'm a, uh, for those who are maybe new to this program, people who have checked out some of my previous content, hopefully it's uh, become available again. Uh, I did a number of uh, episodes, about 74 episodes, uh, going back to 2012, where I talked a lot about uh, different aspects of uh, our psychological lives and and trying to understand uh, some of the complexity of things that people struggle with and um, but in my daily therapy practice um, one thing that I spend a lot of time you know what they call psychoeducation with clients is getting them to have a different understanding of what trauma is and of course trauma the word trauma comes from trauma which means wound so there's a sense of brokenness. There's a sense of incompleteness. So there's an identification with the idea that the treatment I received or the lack that, that, that I went through is my worth or is my place, rather than the more, what would seem more obvious and therefore invisible, which is the mark of some explicit trauma that, that I'm not aware of. So if the trauma is as is what happens to you, then part of that trauma is the inattention to the depth of who you are in your experience. Mm -hmm. It's it's the omission of that uh, that emo emotive attunement in terms of the development, and that's what we call developmental trauma, not necessarily the overt abuse um, or harm to a child. So I have this really quite amazing moment. When I was teaching a course at SFU, it was a kind of pre uh, prerequisite for for uh, those wanting to go on to a master's of, of counseling. And it was a course called um, Helping Relationships. 
And um, so it was a very interesting course to teach because the bulk of the course was students engaging in uh, listening and helping relationship uh, dyads um, on camera. So some of these students, you know, were already working for agencies and doing volunteer work. Some may want to go on and become professional counselor, work in agencies. And so they need the fundamentals of, of listening. And so we followed a, a text that had been taught in the course, and it was, you know, very didactic and, and uh, explanatory, and all the theory was laid out, and, then, you know, standard textbook stuff, and they could, you know, review, and we reviewed at the beginning of the class. And so we went through this whole cycle of what's taught as uh, non-judgmental listening. That's the foundation of the practice. Then they consent to working together, and they're doing real work with each other. I mean, they're not trained therapists, but they're listening and being non-judgmental. And the whole idea is to open up, to create a safe space, to allow the, the client and guide them to their core of their own story because they're kind of in a way surviving by deflecting away from that trauma which at the core feels too big it's insurmountable mm. so you definitely don't want to go at it or make any presumptions so they go off and they do these video sessions for three four hours a, a class and then we would you know meet up uh, with their group and they would give feedback to each other once they took turns and then i would meet with their group and get feedback on how it was going and then we'd meet up as a class. So we kind of got into rhythm of this after a couple of classes, and we had the kind of plenary meeting with the whole uh, group. And so I asked everybody how it was going, and, and unanimously, they everyone said, we feel like we're not getting it. And I said, well, what do you feel like you're not getting? And they said, well, we just feel like we're not getting to the core of what their issue is or kind of identifying it. And so I said, so what you're feeling is a certain anxiety that you're not moving along fast enough. You're not being the helper, so to speak. You're not fulfilling that role. And they said, well, yeah, kind of. So there was this sort of projection onto me that somehow I'd failed right. them. And I said, well, certainly I've given you the material. I said, but that is the material. It's it's the practice that really matters. And that's, so let me ask you this question. If if that is true, which it is, and what you've been taught and, and, and have practiced and studied and been quizzed on, which is the fundamentals of this non-judgmental listening, then what is it that you think is missing, that, that you're missing outside of that. And it stumped everybody. And I didn't have the answer. It was a rhetorical question. <laughs> I guess I was confident I had some kind of answer. So I, I really wanted to wait to see what people had to say. And a few people made an attempt. And then it struck me. I said, the reason it feels like it's not enough is because you never experienced it. Mm. So it, 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 to me, that speaks directly to what you're describing in terms of slowing down. It's the way a lot of people say, um, they can't meditate. You mm. hear this all the time. Because slowing down is incredibly powerful. It means to be present with uh, your emotions and any unfinished business, as we were mm. talking about earlier. And then there's this sense of panic that you don't know what to do with the stillness. Mm. So in, in dyadic relationship or in groups, listening is an extremely powerful skill. And, and uh, we just assume it comes naturally. But it is a vitalizing... Uh, um, Yes. You know. Yes. So we might think of, of there's some kind of gift exchange going on. Absolutely. There. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I think that's that's a really helpful connection to make yeah. into the world of therapy. Well, you were mm. also thank you. You were also mm. speaking about it in the classroom in terms of the teacher really seeing themselves in that capacity to listen and then you know as they say in therapy reflect right. That's right. Yes. So this breathing in and out, it's the attentiveness to the movement of the child's imagination or the child's, you know, spirit in a sense. Mm -hmm. 
um, which might come out in the form of words, but we're, you're also reading body language, right? Yes. You're reading emotion. Um, so there's all these ways in which the child is speaking to you. Mm. Um, and the in the course that I'm working with this term, which is a group of fairly experienced teachers, um, there there are several teachers that clearly ha have this this practice of of really attending closely mm -hmm. to the children in their classes, and it's it's wonderful to talk with them, mm. the insights that they have. You know, I'm really fascinated with acting. I started acting when I was a little kid, and and I was fascinated. I think before I was born. I mean, my parents are both creative people, and had a a real affection for, you know, they were boomer baby, babies, essentially born in the '40s, and and my dad in the late '30s. And um, grew up in that era of like the you know Hollywood, the golden era, and then the, and then the fifties yeah. and sixties, and so that really kind of technicolor, um, you know, kind of world of of creative artists and and comedians and actors and and singers and performers. So I kind of grew up in the shadow of that you know twentieth century renaissance of creativity, and in turn, because my parents loved it, you know, I listened to their records and watched the movies that they introduced me to. But studying acting and and doing acting is a really another kind of fascinating uh, gift exchange. Yeah. Because the great actors mm. will, whether it's stage or, or um, film or TV, will tell you that acting is about listening. Hmm. That if you're waiting to say your line, right. you're, not, you're not listening. Right, right. right. Yeah. And it's all about the power of that space and what happens when you listen naturally mm. and what naturally happens mm. in a scene you know, because by listening, you're giving space to the other actors. Right. The actors talk about being very generous. Mm, yeah, that's a great connection too. Yeah, yes. and also being, I love how actors, you know, talk about uh, how an actor is really intelligent in that. And I think that's what they're speaking to is a sense of mm. recognizing when to lean in and when to sit back. And it's it's, right. a, it's a generous act, mm. right? Yes. Again, we're back into this rhythm of the breath, right? The in, the in and the, the in and the out. Yeah, I love that idea because what it means is that this is that the you're never not swimming in in as uh, as Lorca refers to the the spirit of the earth. Mm. So you so you're in the body of the earth and re, and respiring as if you're underwater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In every setting that you're in. That's right. You know, no in, in, what Aiki, you're doing. in Aikido, yes. which for people who uh, may not know my background, and this is certainly a feature of um, doing this podcast, and it was my focus of my doctoral work. Aikido is the Japanese uh, defensive art, and otherwise known as a martial art, but a, an art where you learn to um, be calm in the presence of, a, of an attacker or an opponent without any spirit of trying to combat or destroy or overtake them, but to skillfully... Um, and as uh, with the least amount of effort and, and force as possible, resolve and sort of have a sense of calm control. And that really, um, in a practical sense on the map, believe it or not, is underpinned by the by the uh, learning you're doing of your of yourself, the self-reflection mm. in, in terms of those impulses to be defensive and to lash out. Right. And it's it's uh, definitely encoded with that same kind of ontological and living sense that all being is interconnected mm. and therefore no one is entering from some outside sphere of where you are yes to attack some kind of uh, insulated identity outside of it it's interesting because it connects with me with that for me with that idea i mentioned earlier 
of the poverty of the artist. Mm, and yes, and yes, Hyde please. refers to that image of the Buddha holding an empty bowl. Yes. Um, so it sounds like in Aikido, uh, in a sense, what the, the, the practitioner is doing is emptying themselves of, uh, as it were, uh, a sort of ego-centered intention. Yes. To be to be receptive to move in the flow of the in and out of that energy with the other person. Yeah, there's um. Oh, let's see if I can remember his name now. Oh, I'm gonna be embarrassed if I can't remember. Um. Oh, I'm gonna have to make a post note in the <laughs> podcast later. I'm getting tired now at the end of my day. But there's a famous uh, psychologist, uh, a Buddhist psychotherapist uh jack um oh it's gonna bug me anyway he wrote a piece about 40 probably 40 years ago now where he said um in order to become somebody you have to lose Uh yourself first and he got a lot of into a lot of hot water (laughs) um and then eventually he followed it up with um you know kind of a caveat that you have to have a sense of self right before you can lose a sense of self. So in Aikido, it's not like in Buddhist thought. It's not about the annihilation of an identity. Right. It's just not the preoccupation. Yes. And and the yes. reification of some fixed identity mm-hmm. or that the experience you have of yourself is a real thing. It's a it's a it's a construct. Mm. A co-arising, as they say in Buddhism. Yeah, it's very well yes. put. So alternatively, you know, when you are when you're existing and in, a, in an ongoing reflective way without a preoccupation with yourself, in other words, yourself is more uh, attuned altruistically, not in a high-minded way, but more in the way we're talking about, mm-hmm. ecologically. Right. Um, then, um, then you're ready. There's a sense of readiness and not a, not a sense of surprise, but a sense of readiness and attunement um, to whatever happens to disrupt things in your ecological environment. But the interesting part here about the gift is that when you are training, you are giving yourself completely over in the attack mm. to the benefit of the person who's right. doing the training. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. You know, like, in a, yeah. in, and for yourself, obviously, because you want to learn to be fearless and move without thinking right. and these kind of things. Um, but I think that that's a really beautiful part of the practice mm. is that sense of devoting yourself. It's a kind of loving act to say, yeah. I'm going to come at you in a way that's reasonable <laughs> enough, but real enough to honor sure. the fact that I, no. that I, I respect yes. you wanting mm. to learn from yes. it. Yes, yes. I am authentically here with you. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, maybe you could speak a little bit. Maybe we're coming up to the kind of a natural end of our time here on the hour. But I, I'd be curious to get your thoughts, particularly because, you know, we work together, you as... A, you know, professor, mentor to me being a doctoral student about that relationship as kind of a gift exchange. Because it's a very interesting for people who don't know, and I speak to about it sometimes with my clients, about the experience of 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 going through the, again, it's a psycho-spiritual process of, um, and you've done it, obviously, um, you know, getting through your, your doctorate because there's a kind of paradox there that the thing that you're doing that's uniquely uh, yours is something you don't know the path. You have to the path has you have to kind of create the path in front of you. Yeah. And the people who are there to advise you don't know it either. Right. So that that might be an interesting kind of last thought. It is here. a fascinating process. I mean, I wasn't your supervisor, right. so we didn't go through this right. together. Um, but 
I've certainly learned a lot through supervising students through that process. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I've learned is that the the reasons why people may believe they came into doctoral studies are very often not the actual reasons. And that's the one of the keys to uh, a really successful doctoral journey, or one that is deeply satisfying for the student and mm -hmm. for that matter for the supervisor. Mm -hmm. um, is to find out what they're really there for. Uh, because I, I think people often come into doctoral studies because they sense that there's something in their life that they need to figure out. Mm -hmm. But because they think about entering a doctoral program intellectually in terms of, you know, I'm going to be right. studying these, these scholars, these topics, these traditions, etc., etc., um, and and there's this obsessing with you know what is my research question. Um, these are these are all distractions very often from the real question. Um, and until I understood that, um, I I wasn't I felt somewhat dissatisfied with the results of my supervisory work. Hmm. But as I came to realize that actually the students don't know. The students don't know why they're there. And so our first job as a student supervisor, Diane, is to figure out why they're there. What is the work that is calling to be done? Um, then things became much more satisfying uh, for both of us. So what was that? And adventurous. What was that aha for you? What was that transition into recognizing, you know, from recognizing that you were being distracted by the you know, the kind of conventional markers of what defines a doctoral journey yeah, to, to the actual process itself. I don't know. It's the same in my teaching, right? Mm -hmm. I used to teach in, in a much more left brain kind of way. Mm -hmm. And now it is much more of this breathing in and out, this asthesis uh, being, creating conditions in the classroom where people can bring more of themselves into uh, who they are and how they talk and the questions that we explore and how we explore them. Um, so in teaching and in supervision, it's been a gradual and not entirely uh, planned out process. You yeah. know, it's, it's, it's more me listening to the feelings that I have after class or after working with a, uh, a student I supervised about whether whether it feels like that has been as deeply meaningful as it could be, and yeah. then thinking if not, why not? What 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 needs to change here? But it it it, it seems to kind of uh, require a certain um, interrogation or risk or um, at least some kind of self reflection as an educator to to first of all recognize what what box you're in in your head with your student <laughs> and. But then kind of talking again about that Aikido process of, in a way, recognizing the work is to, first of all, shed yourself of your own neurotic tendencies. Right. Absolutely. Yes. To get out of the way. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So this is, this is absolutely self-work as, well as, mm -hmm. as well as work in the in-between between me and students as well. Yeah. Which is not yeah. something that's part of the teacher training or <laughs> they, academic world. They don't tell you world. about this. No, 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 no. No, no one prepares you for that. <laughs> no, indeed. Yeah. No, and it's been one of the great discoveries for me that uh, teaching can be such, uh, such intellectually stimulating work and yeah. such such great work, su such great personal work as yeah. well. I really like the way that you you would do that, where you 
I mean, I could see that in the way that you taught, that sometimes you bring stuff in and go, this is what I think I should teach, who <laughs> would kind of yeah. fit the mold, right? Right. And then you just bring in other stuff that was just, what happens if I do this? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, or something this this caught my attention. Yeah, I thought this might be interesting. Yeah, yes. and the best experiences I had in in the coursework, and you know, because I had you and and my supervisor, um, He Soon Bai, um, were just great conversations. Mm. And I found myself sometimes thinking, when are we going to actually do the work? Because <laughs> <laughs> yes, we're we're doing right. what we're doing yeah, now. Yeah. <laughs> we would just inadvertently bring up tell stories, yeah. and but it's interesting that the we were talking about this earlier, and and this is sort of maybe a final thought here. And when, and I started a a PhD program before SFU that went awry, but I was at a, a, a workshop, I guess, out in the Eastern United States with the program leaders, and I won't get into that details of that, but uh, we were back at the hotel that the students who had come gather all around from the world, actually, um, were staying because we were being hosted by the uh, the leaders of the workshop, and um, and we were just hanging out and having some deer, beer and dinner and and, uh, and then in the parking lot talking afterwards. And I was talking about some ideas uh, about liminality um, and uh, you know, sort of trying to work through some things about life and death and how Aikido sort of teaches us uh, or takes us to the edge of life and death on the mat as kind of a, a mirror of what happens in daily life and existentially and so on and so forth. And I had this big aha moment because mm-hmm. here I was standing in the parking lot having this, you know, kind of passing... You know, kind of, uh, in a sense, kind of unstructured, yeah, unimportant in a conversation. Space. Exactly, in a liminal <laughs> space. And uh, and here was this really meaningful conversation. And, and it's the same thing that kind of prompted me to have you on this program was the conversations, the things that happen in between the interstitial moments of life are the things of life. Hmm. And I think that as an artist and as a, you know, creative intellectual we we often get stuck like the so-called writer's block i think is a failure of people to step back and realize that they're they're getting in their own way because they think there's something they should be doing mm. rather than letting what's happened happen yeah it's that emptying oneself out again that yeah we were talking about yeah yeah yes yes and there's something in liminal spaces that helps us do that um i think hyde writes about this in his subsequent book right mm-hmm. the, the book about trickster yeah because trickster is the god you find in in, yes. in liminal spaces, yes. right? Yes, the god of the crossroads. Yes, but also the god, the trickster is you know for a, uh, for a lot of people the connotation is is um, disruption. Yes, the that's, unexpected. That's, that's one of the things that tricksters do. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So in a way, it's kind of making space or welcoming disruption in our lives, not necessarily turmoil, but. Um, you know, it's like John Lennon said, Life's busy. what happens when you're busy making other plans, right? <laughs> and not to regard those things as being, you know, you know, distractions or deviations from the path, but it's, it's actually the whole landscape. Well, yes, it's complex, right? In in the phenomenon of Trump in the U.S., yes. right? I mean, he's, he's a disaster in, in many ways. Yes. But you can also see that this is how cultures renew themselves. Yes. Um, so there's there's this trickster energy to Trump, yes, right. That uh, even though I loathe the man, um, I can see how that energy is has the potential of revitalizing some aspects of American democracy yes. that, that, that's simply gotten bogged down, you know, yes. with the colossal sums of money and all the sort of institutional inertia. In a government that employs two million, two million civil servants, um, uh, 
so so it's not the the trickster phenomena or trickster energy is always comfortable or always pleasant or or something that you would necessarily welcome mm -hmm. um but it asks us to uh, to look at the ways in which the opportunities this provides mm -hmm. um for things that have gotten stuck to be unstuck again yeah and i guess i i never thought of this and i don't know if that that Jung wrote about trickster. I don't know if he got into sure. that mythology, yeah. but he certainly writes about shadow, and not in a in a in a pejorative sense. No, no. The shadow is just the unseen things in our lives. You the know? things we have have decided not to be conscious about, right. uh, in a sense. Yes, not that it's a conscious decision, but yeah. but yes, Jung says something like, if you have consciousness then there must also be things that one is unconscious of. Mm -hmm. And that is the, that is where the shadow. Yeah. Is. And I think that, you know, going back to this idea about creativity, I think that the thing, one thing that drives all creativity is, well, this might be a too broad a statement, but one aspect of it is certainly uh, a, a pull to integrate, you know, something. Mm. Integrate one's own life experience or to... Uh, you know, find themselves through expression or to convey something about an experience they're going through that's that's meaningful. Maybe the last thought is something you brought up earlier in our conversation over dinner, which was about, um, I can't remember who the artist was, but talking about n not wanting people to understand fully what they were writing oh, about. Oh, that was Derrida. That was Derrida, yes. Yeah, Jacques mm -hmm. Derrida was the famous, uh, you know, French... Uh, Post-structuralist. Post-structuralist, Post yes. yes. So speak a little bit about that. Uh, well, Derrida was uh, simply saying that he's conscious um, when writing, um, sometimes of a desire not to be fully understood. Because he said, if, if I wrote something and, and all the meaning was right there and, and anyone reading that mm -hmm. would know exactly what I meant, then in a sense there'd be nothing... He'd be dead. Uh, yeah. Well, the the <laughs> sentence at least would be dead. Yes. The idea would be dead. Yes. There, it would, it would not have that inner life. Right. Uh, that that makes something worth revisiting. That but you also, read it and you come back to it and reread it and it means something new each time. But it also kind of distances you or, um, from from the writer themselves. Because, they, because it renders them inert. Yes, that's right. I mean, obviously, the writer is not uh, right. fully understandable. Yeah. So why write something that that pretends that they are? Yeah. yeah. Well, if, if you've ever, you know, read Samuel Beckett, you understand. That. <laughs> <Indeed>. <laughs> and then people like that are not trying to be yes. deliberately obfuscating, but that doesn't mean they're also, n you know, deliberately not trying to be too explicit. Oh, quite. Quite those, so. those seem to be the most compelling kind of, you know, writers, authors, painters, you know. Right, right. Because because the work has this integrity to it that you were talking about. Yeah. Um, Rilke is the same, right? Yeah. You can you can analyze a Rilke poem yeah. up up backwards and forwards and upside down, but it it retains this kind of mysterious energy. You know, as a uh, Parting note here, uh, I don't want to create any spoilers, but in the, we're um, watching the second season of The Crown, which is an absolutely brilliant um, long-form drama 
brilliant performances and probably like a, a lot of people i found myself in, you know for a long time just kind of poo-pooing it thinking i have no interest in the british monarchy <laughs> uh which is playing itself out in real time um because they're falling apart themselves but um it's such a brilliant show and a brilliant art draws you in in a way that you find empathy or mm. you know pathos right now and so i'll just speak to the historical fact of what's dramatized without giving anything away in the show but it's um it's the end of churchill's uh, reign as prime minister and they've committed both uh, houses and parliament have commissioned um a portrait an official portrait and they bring in what considered a modern portrait artist or artist um and whose name now escapes me as well because i'm so tired uh chamberlain sutherland yes david sutherland his name is and um and this is not a spoiler because it's truth he uh he d did this portrait and and churchill was so you know hated it hated it that he burned it <laughs> and it's considered a lost masterpiece uh -huh. but the, but the interplay between the two and this takes up most of the epi the final episode um is brilliant because it it it's that tension between what compels the artist and then and as you say the narcissism of the subject wanting a their own kind of reflection of themselves yeah and you know, the dialogue is just uh, so engaging because Sutherland says, well, you know, I'm, I'm painting what's there. If you don't like what's there, that's your problem. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't like what, that's your struggle with yourself, yeah. essentially. Yeah. Mm. You know? mm. All right. Well, maybe that's a natural place to, to finish off. We could always have another conversation down the line. Yeah. Um, but I want to thank you very much for the gift of your time and your uh, presence and your insights and um, being here and sharing that with our listeners. And... Uh, Really happy that this is our first episode uh, for the new launch of the Mind Whisperer. And uh, you've been listening to Michael Gordon and Dr. Mark Fettis from Simon Fraser University. Well, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed that uh, inaugural relaunch of the Mind Whisperer with uh, Dr. Mark Fettis. And thank you again for uh, joining me on this uh, maiden voyage on the boat. And uh, looking forward to more podcast from uh, from the good ship uh, mind whisperer and uh to all you listening thank you for uh, for listening and uh, you can find us on apple um uh, podcasts and all the other platforms that carry this feed um the homepage again is the mind whisperer.podbean.com you've been listening to dr michael gordon and we look forward to hearing from you on facebook at the mind whisperer uh page on facebook and uh more content to come stay safe out there it's crazy times wash your hands look after each other and we'll see you again real soon